You're listening to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. Conversations with creatives during the quarantine. Welcome to Stir Crazy with Steve Jenkins. I'm Steve Jenkins, and this is Stir Crazy. I know everybody's tired of politics. I am. I'm pretty sure that you are. But just a reminder that we're a week away from the election. So at this point, if you haven't mailed in your ballot, mask up and go vote in person or find a legit drop box and drop your ballot there. That's all I got. My guest today is Lex Sadler. Lex is a bassist, programmer, designer, and a musical director. Besides being a great electric bass player, he's also a very skilled synth bass player. Lex is originally from Australia. He moved to New York around 13 years ago. He's played with all kinds of people like Peter Sankati, Talib Kweli, Common, Michael Bolton, and many more. He has a great solo record called Polytronic. Uh, I've checked it out. It's great. Great people on there like Corey Henry. Nat Townsley, Ari Honig, those are two amazing drummers. Alex Hahn, who's a wonderful sax player. And also uh, Sydney Driver, who Lex has a project with called Rhythm and Stealth. That project is an eclectic mix of electronica, hip-hop, samples, live instrumentation, and drum and bass beats. Lex and I spoke at the end of June, and we talk about all kinds of things, like the beginning of the pandemic, what we were doing, what he was doing. We talk about different kinds of bases. We talk about video games, technology, the whole nine. It was a great conversation and here's how it went. What's been happening, man? How you been? I am good. I'm doing my best given the circumstances, which I think we all can say. Yeah. You know, I've been enjoying, actually enjoying a little bit of time off from, you know, what's been a relentless 13 years of hustling in New York. Yeah. Um, I do miss it, but I do think I was, you know, I was maybe getting to a little bit of a burnout point. Yeah. Anyway. So it's kind of nice just to have a little bit of time. Um, that said, I do look forward to being able to play music again with people whenever that time may be. And, um, can't say I really know <laughs> at the moment. I don't think any of us do, you know? It's weird because we're, we're three months in to right, roughly, right? Like three months in. And so I started this podcast. I mean, I started getting it together, I guess, at the end of March. And so yeah. there's like a bunch of people I've had on, you know, like right, as of right now, there's been like, almost 20 episodes, but like it dawned on me that like, it might be cool to like wait to talk to some people because it's definitely one of those things that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And it's like the, the situation is ever evolving. So you've been not to like reveal your exact location, but you're, you're in New York. Yes. um, And you're kind of right in the heart of like, in between sort of like where Chelsea and Midtown and like, yeah, that kind of area. I'm right in Um, the thick of it. So how's, how's that been, man? Have you, has your day to day been like, is any, is there any normalcy? Um, like without, without revealing exact locations, is that coffee place that we both like, is that, are they up and running or are they? They're not up and running yet, but I do receive 
marketing emails from them, which suggests that they're still in business, <laughs> which is a good thing. But, you know, there's a little bit of return to normalcy. Um, you know, I, I like to go for a daily walk now that the weather is getting better and, you know, just get out of the house. And, um, you know, you're beginning to see on the streets a, a return to some kind of semblance, semblance of what we knew as normal. Right. It's not entirely normal. And, you know, different uh, businesses are dealing with it in different ways. Like it can walk into some stores if there's a, a customer limit or some of these restaurants and cafes are doing sidewalk seating. You know, I walked by one in the West Village today that had um, constructed perspex partitions between tables. Um, okay. Others aren't going that far. But, you know, what I am noticing is a shift in attitude towards this between you know, how people react to it now and what it was like in the early days because at the big, you know, top of this, what, mid-March, I think March 13th was my last night out in the city, was my last gig. And, you know, I remember the following week just being, it felt apocalyptic. Um, I've never seen the streets, you know, this empty. Wow. And it's kind of gone from you know, people having this deep paranoid fear of it to now seemingly not caring as much, which I don't know if is such a great thing, but we, you know, we just don't know. I think yeah. at the end of the day, you know, it just feels like no one really knows. And, um, you know, we've never experienced something like this in, you know, to this degree in our lifetime. So, you know, navigating it as best we can, really, and hoping for the best, whatever that means for us specifically. You know, artists always um, take one for the team and we're definitely doing it in this, in this case, you know? Yeah, it's, it's strange, man, because uh, I was thinking about what I was doing right before everything stopped. You know, yep. and even the very last gig I had, which was like a week before, there was no stage. Um, yep. It was basically just people surrounding where we were playing. It wasn't jam card, but it had that vibe. It kind of looked like that. Like it kind of, right. this, this was with like Sean Wright and Mark Letary. We're doing Mark's music, but um, it was just like, you know, like just a phalanx of people surrounding where we were. And it was a cool gig and it was fun and, it was nice to see everybody, but just logistically thinking about that now freaks me out, man. And I think about all the clubs in New York that I loved playing at, but also going to. And it's just like, man, I don't know how, I don't know how the fuck they're going to like adjust to it. Yeah. Or, or I think survive. about that too. I think about that too. Um, but I also, I like to try and remain optimistic. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I kind of have this feeling like as quickly as things changed, they can always change back. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not, I don't see the doomsday scenario in this. I think it's going to be a, a grind. Um, I think it's going to take longer than, you know, anyone really wants to accept. Yeah. But I don't think it's the end of, you know, how we, how we do things. And let, let's be honest, I mean, it was kind of tough for venues anyway. Right. It was kind of tough for touring anyway. 
Yeah. Um, you know, so they're, they're challenges we've always faced, I think, mm-hmm. doing what we do. But, you know, it's been, a, it's been a tough lifestyle adjustment after going from, you know, being out four or five nights a week involved in, in music to not really seeing anybody or going anywhere yeah. or doing anything. And, you know, I, I didn't really get involved in the, um, the live streaming side of things. I've, I've done some recording and I've done a few little video collabs here and there. But, you know, it doesn't replace being in the room with people, even just on a, you know, a, a, a social level. You know, I live for, for Monday nights and the producer Monday jam right. just, just to see everyone and, you know, talk shit and make jokes and play some music and have a good time. And, you know, I do miss that. But I'm, I'm optimistic it will return at some point. It's just how we get there. I'm not too sure. Yeah, I think it's going to – I think I agree with what you're saying. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. – I think the, the hardest part of it is really just suspending – any real expectations of when it's supposed to come back. Cause I think that upsets people. And I think yeah. it, it makes people, it forces people into a discussion that like maybe isn't as necessary as much as the discussion is about like safety and like yep. the greater good of humanity versus, I mean, I guess that's the problem. Like we're in a society that is kind of ruled by like capitalism and that's the construct everyone's kind of accepted. Um, but, yeah, I think it's always going to be a challenge to get a Western country to um, comply yeah. with something like this. Um, and, you know, you can kind of see the results. It's over because we've said it's over kind of thing <laughs> rather, right. than it, rather than it being over. But, you know, at the same time, every day there's another conflicting piece of information as to, you know, how is this thing transmitted? You know, this, this and that. What's the way of dealing with it? So, you know, I think people are rightly confused as to, to what the path forward is. Um, but, yeah, like I said, I, I, I have to remain optimistic. And, you know, part of that is, is remaining in the United States, remaining in New York, even, even through all of this. Yeah. Um, and just sticking it out and pushing through it. And, um, yeah, you know, it's the scary thing is how how quickly you can adjust to a new lifestyle. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm you know what three and a half months in, and yep. in some ways I'm quite content. And <laughs> in my mind, I would prefer to just go along with this a little longer than being led back into you know what we consider a normal society find that it spiked and then being asked to come back in and do it all over again. I think that would be, that would be crushing for people. Mm. Um, so, you know, time will tell. I wish I knew, but we don't. Yeah. That's the baffling thing. Like there isn't really a, there isn't really like a set, a set um, protocol other than just trying to like use whatever data there is and, that's data that's constantly being updated and uh, yep. challenged. And, and unfortunately, you know, uh, what should be a real simple discussion is not a simple discussion. Exactly. Uh, exactly. But 
Yeah, you know, I, I tend to look at it more optimistically than not. I just don't – I think that's the thing is, like, we've got to keep reminding ourselves of, like, the only real reference point we have is the uh, pandemic from 1918. And, uh, you know, even that, like, it's hard to – it's hard to – it's 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 different, you know? Like, I wonder – It is. You know, like, I wonder what people were saying about that. But I also think they weren't – they didn't have the same types of things in a widespread way that we do. So like, I don't know if that, you know, who knows if there was a contingency of people that like debated whether masks were safe or not, or, you know, yeah. Like I did read a, I did read an article about it and I wish I could find it. I, I haven't been able to locate it, but they actually took a lot of steps that we did. And what was particularly interesting for, that period of time, at least according to this article, was it was really written from the perspective of uh, musicians and artistry. And they were facing a lot of challenges all around the same time, including, you know, a, a, a world war, a, a pandemic, and then, and then prohibition. And also, I believe it coincided with the invention of the phonograph. I think I'm, I think I'm right. I may not be, but okay. I feel like there were all these doomsday factors at the same time for them. And it was, you know, for them. And it was like, well, live music is finished because we have this, we have a pandemic, we have prohibition and we have the, the phonograph. And <laughs> ultimately, you know, we, we got through it. And I think that'll, you know, I think that's a, a, a glimmer of hope for right. us. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to say, obviously we have a much broader and more immediate proliferation of information these days, right. which can really make everything feel incredibly bad. Um, so it's hard to, you know, it's hard to get perspective on it. And I find myself fluctuating almost daily as to what my opinion is of all of this. Ultimately, my opinion doesn't count because what's happening is happening. And mm -hmm you know, really all I can do is choose how I deal with it. And maybe that's ultimately what it's going to come down to, you know, having a choice as to how you want to deal with this, um, whether you want to go out and partake in things or whether you want to stay inside. But we'll see. I think, I think live music's going to live on though. I, um, I don't think it's a medium that can just exist in a device or through a screen. Yeah, I, I remember. So you said something about that. I I think, by and large, it, it's just more of a logistical problem than like than like the actual need for it disappearing. You know, and absolutely. I, I think like you know, I guess the way I can I can think about it is like most of us probably are doing some combination of live playing, recording composition stuff maybe teaching or doing yeah. you know there's like a bunch of hats we're all wearing absolutely but, um, i think even in the three and a half months or whatever since since the start like i definitely miss playing i definitely miss it i definitely miss what it does you know even if like i'm just playing once a week i miss that feeling of being able to play music with people and you know you kind of align with the music differently than you do if you're 
wearing headphones and sitting behind a computer or, you know, sitting. Yeah, man. I mean, we're bass players. We have the, we have the thump of that behind us. Right. You know, nothing yeah. can beat that feeling. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's probably the most tactile interaction there is really. Absolutely. And then you add the people into it, which is like, you know, it's, it's almost like they're the silent, however many members of the band, like they're the next member of the band almost because of course, you know, like you can't, I, I don't mean, it's weird. I don't know. Like, I was, cause you do, I mean, I know you do a lot of production stuff too. Um, mm. Do you find that, I mean, as taken as its own thing, do you find that to be satisfying? Like, do you ever work on shit and you're just like, man, this track is dope. And you feel good about yeah. it in a way that almost mirrors how you feel about performance, but it's, you know, I, obviously its own thing. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the work that I do and I have fun doing it. And I, I, you know, I don't generally take a project on unless I, I, I'm going to take a personal interest and satisfaction out of doing it. Yeah. Um, but, but it's not the same as being in the room with people. And, you know, we, we do a lot of improvised music and there's something so unique to the art form of music where its creation is just happening in the moment and instantaneously and, you know, evolving and adjusting and, and all of that kind of thing to what's going on in the room, whether it's the audience or whether it's other, you know, other people on stage or, or whatever it is, there's just nothing else like that. So that, that's what I miss the most right now. It's just yeah. that feeling of, of spontaneous creation that you yeah. don't get from, you know, sitting in your room and fine tuning a track and going through, you know, a thousand different snare sounds. I find that stuff tedious. You know, yeah. I prefer I prefer the abnormalities and the, the inconsistencies and the mistakes that you get from having to keep up in a live improvised situation. Um, that keeps me, you know, that's the kind of thing that keeps me interested, yeah. really, and pu- pushes, pushes you to be better. Right. Um, and you have to commit in a way that you don't have to commit when you're in... A, like a lab environment, you know, like, yeah, you kind of have, you have like milliseconds to make a decision and commit to it. Yeah. You got to catch it yeah. and, 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 you know, come up with a, a part that works or, or, or whatever that is. And, and, you know, listen to what's going on. And, and I, I miss that. I miss that, that interaction. Um, yeah because it was just such a big part of my week (laughs) as well, you know? Well, let's talk about that. How did the um, producers Monday, how did that whole thing get started? Cause I remember, you know, before all this, we were talking about trying to get, try to get someone to like talk to you about this in some kind of article form for base magazine or whatever. And like, yep. I talked to John Daria about it and like, you know, I was, that was sort of right around before this whole thing happened. But like, you know, that's definitely something I hope comes back. And when New York is, when it's safe to travel, obviously, like that's something I want to see, but let's, let's go back. Like what, how did that whole thing start? Yeah. So that was started at New Blue by Ray Angry. Yeah. And, um, Ray I've known for about 13 years, incredible composer, pianist, keyboardist, um, works regularly with the who's who of everybody and, and the roots and so on. Yeah. And 
you know, on the original sessions there back in the early days, Ray had um, a couple of other guys. He had Stro Elliott from the, the Roots as well, um, doing some programmed elements. And really the genesis of Producer Mondays was to, to bring, you know, bring all these people together in the type of jam session that was not like your normal jam session. Um, you know, really the ethos around it is, is um, you know, trying to do what the name suggests and produce on the fly. And really that means listening, um, leaving space, making arrangement decisions as we go along, which is not something that's inherent to a lot of jam sessions, if I'm to be honest. Right. You know, a lot of the time it's just a lot of things happening at once and, you know, not a lot of listening going on. But, but that was really the foundation of it as far as a concept. Um, and introducing, you know, any element of artistry. I mean, we've had all kinds of um, performers come through, whether it's tap dancers, opera singers, you know, string players, whatever it may be. Uh, we've got a great steel pan player that comes in and joins us regularly. Spoken word, etc. You know, a meshing of all of that stuff together. Um, so it was quite, and still is, a unique night in the city. And and we did get in the studio and put some records together, which will come later this year, um, which I'm pretty excited about. Which is a real reflection of what we were doing live. Um, but as for my involvement, you know, I just started going to the night um, early on rolling up with my bass at Nublu and, and sitting in. And then somehow I kind of fell into the bass chair cool. and have been there ever since. Did any of the stuff that you guys recorded, was that born from those sessions or was it? Did you... Not at all. Okay. It was <laughs> we had like every intention. We... Yeah. We, we, we actually, we actually have got desk recordings of pretty much every night that we've done there. Mm -hmm. They all sit in the Dropbox that we, probably haven't listened to in great detail and the initial intention was to you know pick moments from that and go in and put them together in the studio but then we ended up booking you know i think we had a solid six or seven days in the studio over a, a two-week period right where we just we just went in there and created and you know we had all kinds of people come through the studio uh it was a really amazing experience it, it wow. was you know, it, it was a big hang, but it was a productive hang. Um, and it was just, I don't know, I always dreamed of being, uh, of being part of something like that, where you yeah. just have this rotating cast of, of people coming in and out and, and leaving their impression on what, what you're creating. Um, so it's a very eclectic collection of, of material. Who um, came in? And it's going to have some amazing features. <clears throat> that's cool i was gonna say who can't are you allowed to talk about who's in you know there? i don't want to let the cat out of the bag okay all right but it's i'll put it this way it's a it's a blend of of a lot of i think it's a perfect balance of local regulars at uh, you know that, that came every every week okay and then a mix of um you know some artists that you probably know and there will be some other features on there. But I, I think it really encapsulated, you know, the vibe of what we do because it didn't really discriminate against anyone or leave anyone out because they weren't, 
you know, a known name or so on and so forth. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's not, it's not coming. It doesn't have an agenda as far as. No, I think we kept it. I think we kept it for the family Um, because we just had such a dedicated group of people that, that came every week and it, it just felt right to have them in the studio. Um, And as a result, you know, we got a really, I think it's a really interesting mix of stuff. Um, So yeah, can't give you any, more information than that that's fine <laughs> except to say i'm excited about finishing it sometime in the very very near future right on who's is it going to be is it on a label or are you guys just going to do it uh independently or what's the we haven't decided yet okay we'll see labels i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah no <laughs> you know singles albums labels i mean you know, is it, is this, are these terms meaningful anymore? Yeah, no, it's, that's a good question. Um, I was also going to say, did you guys document any of that stuff on video? I feel like we got the, all of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's video, audio, photos, Polaroids, gifts, gifts, memes. <laughs> we got yeah. it all, man. Yeah. I mean, no TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that should come later. Yeah, I think so. And TikTok is I have a TikTok account. I haven't really messed with it too much. Um I think it could be exciting, but I definitely uh have not I'm way too old for TikTok, man. I Am I? I don't know, you tell me. No, I don't know, man. Like I, I think I think that discussion is interesting because like I'm, I know, I think I'm probably older than you, but we're not that far apart in age. And like, I think we're probably close. Yeah. Um, but like, sometimes I think a lot of this stuff, a lot of this stuff is, it feels young, too young, because maybe like we're part of that generation that straddles like, hey, I remember what it's like to walk into a record store and be excited about a release and not having heard any of it online versus like, who is that? And then automatically you're plugged into the, to the matrix and you can just pull up stuff at will. Like, I think, you know, so I think there's, there's like this kind of classic paradigm of being a music fan or being someone like the way you discover stuff versus like, you know, the way it is now. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think, you know, maybe the, maybe there's merit to being not not like a 20 year old with some of that stuff because then you can you can think about using things differently you know like i mean i think the strategy of like how to utilize those things to to communicate um i mean i guess at this point nobody can really say that like that stuff isn't viable because i've definitely gotten work and made money from like instagram like in terms of students or like gigs even you know like it's you know and even though that ill-fated tour that i I went on last year that was fucked up and kind of pissed me off for a couple months like that sort of came from instagram you know so you you just never know like i picked up stuff through instagram as well yeah i mean we are a unique generation i think because and i i it's funny i had this conversation with someone and I, i use the exact same wording that you do you did in that we we do straddle the internet uh let's call it 
evolution or revolution or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. We were of, you know, cognizant age pre and, and post. And, you know, the, the thing I, I often think is, you know, I was just at that unfortunate age where I maybe wasn't old enough to take advantage of the old world. Yes. And then maybe was a little too early in the new world because, you know, I remember putting my first bass video on YouTube in like 2006, right? Okay. But, and it got some views and it bounced around the internet and through some forums and, you know, I've actually made a lot of friends out of that video all over the world, mm-hmm. but, but there weren't the tools to, at that time, you know, monetize it or, you know, turn it into some kind of career. And right. now all those things are in place, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm not, you know, I look at the content creation world yeah through youtube and it follows this you know pretty specific formula and I, I i just cringe at the thought of ever trying to do something like that because it's just not you know it's not it's not in me and you know i, I have another profession in in the internet world yet in some ways i feel a little bit dumb when it comes to using some of these tools huh. um to, to do things, you know, I feel like I don't utilize them as intuitively as a younger generation does. It's quite interesting. That's my, that's my, my, my unwillingness to, to, to enter the TikTok world, <laughs> you know? Do you think it's just because those tools that might be easier for like younger, the younger generation, do you think it's just because that's what they have? You know, so it's like they're not, there's not this, there's not this process where they're relating it to something they might have used. No, they've just developed with it. Yeah. It's developed in tandem with their development. Whereas we've, we were developed to a point. Yeah. And then we've, we've had to watch it develop. You know, it's, it's to think that YouTube, I mean, I can't remember really when YouTube came out. 2004, maybe earlier. I think I remember using it in 2006. Like I yeah. uploaded something. Which that's is, my memory of when I, when I first uploaded. Now that's 14 years ago. Right, right. Which is a long period of time. Yeah. You know, um, and how we've, you know, accommodated to the changes in YouTube is very different to someone who was 10 in 2006. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Absolutely. I also think most of the music that I've listened to and become a fan of that's new mm-hmm. was totally from watching YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, even from people that are not necessarily like, they're not babies, you know? No. I, I just feel like it's such a powerful, it's a powerful medium. I'd say this though, like the, the one thing I have come to understand with all that stuff, like the content creation stuff, I definitely hear what you're saying about the, uh, like there's like some specific formulas that people follow to for engagement purposes and uh, just for the sake of like doing business, you know, like I know there's like, you know, if you want to talk about gear, it's like 
um, here's a list to all the stuff on Amazon. And like, there's these like affiliate programs that people use to monetize their shit. But I also feel like if it's used the right way, you can also use it. It's just a platform to tell stories or, you know, kind of put your thing out there. If, you know, I just think it's about finding a comfortable, finding comfort with like that medium, you know, like in finding something that works, you know? And look, I consume a lot of it. Yeah. I consume a lot of it. Not necessarily in music. I consume a lot of music. Obviously I look for a lot of live shows and old videos yeah. And stuff like that for n- nostalgia. Right. Um, but I do consume, you know, things related to other interests and I watch plenty of tutorials yeah. on it. it, it it's incredibly entertaining. And yeah. it's amazing. It's amazing to me. What I love about it the most is the obsessive detail with which some of these content creators go into, uh, you know, whatever topic they're discussing. Like it, it's, it's awesome to me, whether it's someone unboxing a sneaker or someone, you know, giving you tips on how to play video games, which I watch a lot of those videos. Oh, yeah. They go into some yeah. serious obsessive stuff yeah. and I love it. I, I love that people, you know, are enthusiastic about things and, and put in the time and effort to share their knowledge about things that they are enthusiastic about. Um, so I do spend a lot of time. It's my, you know, it's my kind of guilty, <laughs> guilty pleasure as much as I, I rag on it. Yeah. So now <clears throat> you've got people that are even just like respectable people. We all love putting up like hints and tutorials and stuff like that. And it's all really usable. So absolutely. So it's really kind of become an interesting destination more than just something for shits and giggles it's like oh wow dude like here's this person talking about you know side chaining here's this person talking about like how they chop up their samples or here's someone talking about how they change their bass strings and what they you know what they do um like and it's like a luthier like i've i've definitely right. watched videos on like how to because you know i don't i haven't I do most of the work on my own basis. Like I don't take it to mm-hmm. somebody, but there's little things that I can't do. Like I don't really know how to do fret work and I don't really have a soldering gun. So like I can't mm-hmm. change, you know, I can't like do that shit, but everything else like neck, neck adjustments and, and action and intonation I can do myself. But yep. every now and then, like I'll get a little bit um, curious to see if there's a better way to do it. And there's tons of people that put stuff up there. That's like super useful. Oh, absolutely. We've got a much more discerning audience now as well, you know, that really want, they want to cut through all the bullshit and get to the point, you know, and get the knowledge and get out, which is why there's always some hero in the comments that puts the timestamps. Yeah. (laughs) Of where, you know, where the nuggets are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right now I'm trying to defeat, um, Thunderblight Ganon because I'm playing Breath of the Wild. So I've been trying to watch videos on that shit. That's amazing. That's about where I'm at now, dude. I mean, like I still practice a lot and I've been working on music and well, I've been playing a ton of Call of Duty and um, I've been playing the Battle Royale mode and in trying to improve at that. I've had a few little wins here and there, but (laughs) in trying to improve that I've, I, you know, made my way to YouTube and 
there's just some amazing stuff out there as far as <laughs> content creation and tutorials. And, you know, there's a guy that takes every gun with every attachment and makes a spreadsheet of every single, uh, you know, possible combination that you can have and how, you know, the bullet time is affected by this and this and that makes graphs and spreadsheets and all of this stuff. It's unreal, man. Wow. It's unreal what people, what people can do. Even yeah. With a video game. I, it, it's weird how good the production is in terms of the way they, uh, you know, cause they'll, they'll kind of take the, the footage from the game and then, you know, they'll like, they can zoom in on shit. Like it's, it's, oh, it's amazing. It's it's some pro, some pro level production. Yeah, and then you know the other thing, here's where I feel old, but I also feel like this isn't totally like a prohibitive feeling. But Twitch is really interesting to me. Just yeah. the fact that people are even into that. Well, I always wondered, you know, what satisfaction could you get out of watching someone play a video game when you could just go and play the video game? yourself right only to find myself enthralled by watching other people play video games <laughs> and there's so many reasons one because i want to see how they do it and how i can improve two because there's just some great personalities out there that are you know streaming They're, it's it's so entertaining watching these people watching the way they talk about what they're doing, even how they converse, you know, with their teammates or whatever it is, it's, it's incredibly entertaining. And I find myself, you know, when I'm not, when I'm not playing, I'll find myself like putting these videos on in the, in the background while I'm making my coffee in the morning, you know, it's, it's wild, but Twitch man, you know, streaming and the streaming communities and esports, you know, that's yeah. another thing where, where, we were just a little too early for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I played a ton of video games when I was a kid, but there was no infrastructure there to make it a living. Right. That was like, it was hinted at, there was like some movie with Fred Savage called The Wizard. And it was like, right. I remember that. It was kind of in the, I think we were in the era still of like um, 8-bit Nintendo. Like, I don't yep. think, I don't think we had gotten to the level of like, the next wave or anything like that but yeah no it's weird man that I, I don't i'm not even aware of like the size of what esports is i mean i you know i, I watched that show. i don't know if you watched that show ballers but um i i hung in there and watched all that shit and that was one thing they were talking about and well uh, when you know when you when you see that they have a a Fortnite tournament at the javits center holy shit that gives you a good idea and i believe the winner was 16 and took home a multi, like a 1.3 million dollar prize or something like that do you play fortnite too no okay. i think fortnite's a different generation okay yeah because that's battle royale that's battle royale yeah winner take all kind of deal but um i mean that's massive you know that, for that to come to javits that's a big deal Jesus, I can't even. So the whole thing was taken up just for that thing. Was it? Was it audience? Everything. Were there vendors too? Was it sort of, a, or was it just they needed all that space for the people watching? 
I think there was probably vendors. You okay. know, we'd probably have like a little bit of a Comic Con vibe. Gotcha. But everyone's there to watch kids play video games. Damn, dude, that's so crazy to me, Isn't man. <laughs> I mean, because the the thing is, like, from from an art standpoint, because um, I got into video games again. I guess two and a half years ago, because when I moved out here, it just seemed like every time I was about to go to bed, North Korea was going to nuke our asses. Right. I was just like, I need to find something else to do before I go to bed. um, That isn't reading the news. And granted, there's a million things I could do besides that. But in my brain, I was like, fuck it, man, let's, let's buy a console. So I bought a switch. Yep. and, And, um, like the first game I played on there was Super Mario Odyssey. And yep. what I hadn't thought about in a really long time was, one, how amazing the music is in those games. Oh, incredible, man. Yeah, like the scores and oh. uh, the different themes. Like, it's just – there's so – so my my overall point with this is, like, there's just so much, like, amazing art with these games in terms of the design of, like, the music and the – the sets and like the the scope of how big the worlds are and what they look like. So I'm kind of all in again, man, even though I think there's nostalgia with some of the stuff that I like about games. Like I kind of want to get um, an Xbox, an Xbox one or something just so I can get the remastered Tony Hawk pro skater one and two. Cause I PS5 next year, man. PS5 next year. Yeah. I, that that's the other thing. So I see it on the horizon. I think those machines are amazing, though. And um, oh, it's I think, incredible. I think playing and there's, games- and there's nothing there's nothing unhealthy about it. You know, we 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 were always kind of told growing up, you know, oh, it's you know it's unhealthy to to do X, Y, and Z. But right, you know, it's it's. I mean, I'm always playing. I'm always playing with people. It's it's a social thing. I play every night with a crew. You know, we, we're, we're chatting, we're working as a team, we're strategizing. It's great fun. It, it, and it develops, you know, it helps you develop skills, problem-solving skills, yeah. motor skills, all of these things. Yeah, man. And there's a whole community around it. I think it's awesome. And it's just amazing to see, you know, how far it's going. And I, I tried the Oculus, one of the o- Oculus devices, was Not too like, long ago. Man, that's crazy. It's insane. Wow. There's a, a ping pong game. And the controllers have haptics. So when you hit the ball, you feel it. Okay. And it, it's 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 amazing. It's incredible. And you're playing online against someone somewhere. Yeah. It's wild. Um, what was the audio like? Because I think I think that's becoming a really amazing thing by itself too um um i don't know if you have seen these although i'm guessing you might have um roland has these uh boss has these headphones mm-hmm. that you can wear and they have like different amps in there and you can change where the sound is coming from within the realm of the headphones incredible so, so you can plug in you can plug your bass in or i tried it at nam with a guitar but incredible. it was more just to get the vibe of what it can simulate but you can set it so like you're the speakers right in front of you like you're sitting on your couch and the amps pointing at you 
or you can have it so it's like behind you, like you're in a rehearsal or something. And it's pretty ridiculous how how real it it does that thing. So can you just imagine like the kind of shit when it starts to become like you have the visual component, you've got the tactile thing with the haptics, and then you've got this like crazy amount of uh, audio realism based around, you know, like the stuff that we all use to simulate like an amp sound or something like impulse responses and stuff. Well, like. it, it, it does give credence to the simulation theory, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's times where I've been using the, the Oculus and I've just found myself, you know, forgetting where I am. <laughs> you know, does it mess with your equilibrium at all when you get out of there or is it cool? A little bit. It depends on the game. I, I did play some of the Sony VR uh, games. There was one that was um, uh, like a flying game, a 360 degree game. Gotcha. And that was unsettling because you don't really know where you are. Wow. Uh, the Star Wars game is awesome. But one thing I did try when I was, I was in Japan a couple of years ago and they have a virtual reality theme park and you know, it's, it's a collection of existing technology, but they've, they've used, um, you know, they've used some pretty novel tricks to, to kind of increase the level of simulation. Hmm. And it's amazing how easily the mind can be tricked by this stuff. And to give you an example, uh, one game was, it wasn't a game. It was more just a ride that you sat through. Um, but the concept behind it is that you're on a, like a, like a swing, like you're swinging through the jungle, right? So you're sitting on a, you're actually sitting in a, in a sling that is on a motor that raises you up and down. And I watched, I watched someone else using it. Now the vertical distance of the up and down movement is very, very small. Like it's mm. maybe... It's maybe a foot each way, but when you put the goggles on and you sit in it and it drops you down in the goggles, you're dropping down a hundred feet. Wow. And this drops down about a foot and a half and it really makes you feel like you're falling. And Jeez. it's a combination in that. Then they had something silly, like a wall fan blowing air on you. Of course, yeah. you know, a great, you know, novel idea. Right. But just with that air blowing on you and sitting in this 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 sling, like it made you feel like you were falling, and that wow. was really really strange. Because I'm like, this is just all too, this just feels a little too real. Um, so you never know. Maybe we are in the sim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In which no. case, who designed this bullshit? <laughs> yeah. No, I know. We're in the. This is the part where we like, made this. Yeah, this worked. We're in total panic right now. Oh my now, god! Yeah, exactly. Um, so you've been in New York for thirteen years. Is that is that what? Yeah, that's correct. Two thousand seven. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to remember how how we met or like when we crossed paths because I remember because I remember seeing you play early on, man. Like probably, dude. I don't know exactly what year this was, but mm. I can I can time stamp it by this because it was in Williamsburg and I think black Betty was still open or it was oh, still, yeah. but like 
you were playing, you were still playing like your white bass. Uh-huh. Could it have been Rose? It could have been, man. It might have been one of those places, but. I miss those venues, man. I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was definitely a place you could walk by and see who was playing. Yeah, but it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't um, Spike Hill. It was, it was, more, it was deeper into Williamsburg. Like it was more towards. Yeah, I used to play at Black Betty quite a bit. Okay, so I think it was that. Probably 2008, 2009. Yeah, that would be, that would be right. Because I was living right around there. Yep. I used to be there all the time, man. Rose okay, was cool. great. Thursday nights at Rose was awesome. Oh, right on. Yeah, I, I was just talking to somebody about that specific time period of, of that part of Brooklyn. Cause Oh, it was great. Yeah. Like Williamsburg was, at that time was awesome. It was, it was, it was like, what else was there, man? There was, well, Zebulon was there and that's Zebulon. Cameo uh, was there. Which one? Even some of the cameo was it cameo. Yeah. cameo and then even there. some of the, the, the newer, the newer joints like Glasslands. Is that still places. there? No, that's gone. Okay. And then I feel like that whole area changed. Was it was there one was there a place called Public Assembly? Was that I feel like there was. was yeah, like there was. North yep. Six. By yeah, like, I used to I used to rehearse out there all the time. Okay. I used to be there all the time. Going to those places. Yeah. North Very different Six. Now. Yeah. North Six has like all those other venues. Mm-hmm. And then there's like that. I can't tell if it's a good Thai place or not. It looks cool with the lights off. It's not. I know the one you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to see that place with the lights on, dude. It's bad. News. No, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. There's like mice and shit, dude. <laughs> yep. Like I saw a mouse in there once. Like not, not kidding. Um, yep. It was bad. But uh, I've seen ra- I've seen rats run across the floor in some very esteemed venues here. <laughs> That's just after hours. The rats come out. Damn. Um, I won't mention any names. <laughs> is is because you know Mikey's hookup is out here now. I don't know if okay. still, I don't know if they're still in Brooklyn or if they kept that location, but they're that dude's out here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's weird, man. I feel like that era of New York. Um, I, I don't know, man. I think that that whole time period was very weird because the business was strange. Mm-hmm. And it was going through a lot of changes, but also New York as a city was kind of going through some shit. And then mm-hmm. there was the financial crisis, which you, you must have been in town for that. that was I was really, here. Yep. That was a really difficult, strange time, I think, for a lot of people, not just not just the Wall Street people. I mean, I guess there was some gigs and stuff and it didn't it wasn't as existential a threat. But um, it fucked me up for a little bit because I lost a bunch of students because everyone who all of a sudden lost their discretionary income, mm-hmm. um, had to like put lessons and like stuff on hold. But uh, I'm trying to think. I did so- enjoy that period though. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. So what I did like about that time when I got here was around April, 2007. And you know, it was still before uh, Facebook, Instagram, all of that kind of stuff. I think, I think MySpace was still a thing. Maybe like the last days of, of MySpace. Um, you know, like I, I got really lucky as far as stumbling into the scene here because I met some people through like complete chance. 
that hit me to a scene, which was the Freestyle Mondays scene. And from there, I kind of got into things. But it all came, you know, it, it came from being out and about and, and getting out there and meeting people. Yeah. Rather than like, you know, here's everyone on Instagram and here's where I can, you know, find this and find that. There was like an element of discovery to it, which I, which I loved at the time, you know? Yeah. And there, there was also, you know, showing up was, was rewarded. You, all you had to do was turn up. And now, you know, it's like we can do things. Well, now we don't have a choice, but prior we could, you know, just as easily do things in the internet world and make our connections that way. Yeah. But I, lo I loved this feeling of like coming to a new place and discovering all these hidden things and then becoming part of that, you know? And there's yeah. just a lot going on at the time. Yeah. I mean, that's, I've been, I mean, I guess prior to all this stuff that we're in, like, you know, I haven't been in LA that long. Mm -hmm. So I, I was sort of in that realm a little bit coming out here and having to like figure out where stuff is, you know? Mm -hmm. But for me, I also kind of was realizing there's a lot of stuff I'm not really that interested in. So it's like, sure, that, that was definitely not something I was planning on, but I think either because of age or just because I've done certain things, like I'm looking at it differently. So some of the stuff, it's just not, I, I'm not as excited about it. Um, but there's, Absolutely. I still think, I still think there's value in, um, just the community element of, of showing up, you know, and I just, agree. just trying to like approach it from that standpoint versus like, this is going to help me find the gig of the century. You know, like I don't No, because there is no gig of the century, right. <laughs> you know, and this is, this is what I tell like young musicians is like, you know, man, just come and be, just come and be part of it. Not because, you know, you're trying to network or you're trying to hustle or you're trying to get, get the big gig or whatever, but just because you want to be around people right. that can share knowledge and experience, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that, that's, that's, that's been the great thing. That's what I've loved. I've, I've loved being around younger musicians like this last year doing the producer Monday stuff, like seeing the next wave of kids come in. It's fucking yeah. awesome. Right. Very and nice. it's non-threatening. You know, I'm like, I, I, man, these kids can play their asses off. That's great. I love seeing it because, you know, as you get older, it's easy to get jaded and maybe like, you know, you've done X, Y, and Z and you, you, you've seen behind the curtain, right? so to speak. But man, it's just refreshing to, to see youthful enthusiasm and absorb some of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. The behind the curtain thing is always interesting because mm -hmm. That's the thing I don't quite understand sometimes where it's like, if people see that and they don't like it, why do we still they don't it? really make the plan. They don't make the choice to stop. Yeah. Then, because it's a, because it's a drug, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, from touring how much of a, how, how much of a drudgery it is. Right. Yet for that, 40 minutes on stage. Yeah. 
it's all worth it. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Like when everything's just like working and even when it's not working as it should, it's still fun. Yeah. You know, you put up with all the rest of the crap. Yep. And as much as we, as much as we say, ah, oh, touring such a drag. And so if I could go on tour next week, I would. Yeah. I would too. I wouldn't even think twice. I would too. I don't know that I would want it to be the cornerstone of my income, but I also no. know that like, I would never not want to do it because, because one, it's interesting. It's a, it's a fun time in terms of playing Two, You get to, I think the biggest thing that touring gives a lot of musicians and, and maybe all travel that's related to just being able to go somewhere um, where you can see parts of the world you don't inhabit most of the time. Like, absolutely. I think you get to see, you get a perspective on the world that is a bit more informed because you get to yeah. see, for example, like what people do when they're just hanging out, you know, like what do people want to do when they're in, you know, when it's like Paris at 2 a.m., like what are people doing? Yeah, absolutely. But I just think a lot of that stuff, you know, it's not like some, I mean, I definitely think we're lucky. I mean, if I wouldn't have been able to see probably 80% of the places I've gone if it wasn't for, for music. You Absolutely. Know? Um, but I think that's the one, that's the one great thing besides the playing part. You just, you get an appreciation for, for parts of the world that don't really have much to do with where you're from. It's like a really, Oh, absolutely. It's really amazing incredible. thing, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it is definitely, it's difficult. I mean, I think the parts of it that are really difficult are difficult enough that like after a certain point, I see why some people say, nah, I'm going to not do that. Yeah, I mean, airports are horrible. Dragging your stuff through an airport at 6 a.m. is miserable. Yeah. Domestic travel, flying is miserable. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fact. But, you know, when all is said and done, I mean, playing the show. And I, I, I even came to enjoy aspects around, you know, putting the show together or some of the logistic kind of stuff. Not, not tour management, but as far as, like, problem solving around getting the show to happen. I love that stuff. Yeah. I love I love doing that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I miss I miss doing that. I was meant to be in Europe right now, but you know, maybe it'll happen next year. We'll yeah, see. hopefully. <laughs> well, what's um, what's next for you, man? In the immediate future, you just sort of keeping your routine. You got any projects you're kind of working at from behind the scenes? I made a project uh, last summer that I put out on March 31st of this year. Um, it's, a, it's a project I made with an incredible musician named Laura Cohen. And it's a lot of Laura's compositions, which, which existed, you know, they existed as piano arrangements and a few other bits and pieces that we, we took and put into this electronic world. Um, so I'm quite proud of that one. That's cool. Did you say it's that? I think I did. It's called the experts have got it right. And oh, it's a right. name like, dude, it's a name I came up with like a long time ago that turned out to be quite fortuitous because it's fairly tongue in cheek. And, you know, we never really have it right, do we? No. So, you know, that, that, that was something I enjoyed putting together. Not really in a hurry to make anything 
else at the moment. Yeah. It'll come back. But, um, you know, I, I, I pick up the bass or, or hit the key bass every other day, you know, right just, to, just to keep a connection to it. But, um, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to getting out there again, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's really nothing like There's nothing that. like it. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, definitely a unique a unique component of playing that's not really available anywhere else. Absolutely. Um, what are you playing on bass-wise? You, you're on the P-Bass thing now, right? I'm on that's... the P-Bass, man. <laughs> nice. You know, I never, I never owned a vintage instrument. And um, I've been playing Warwick's for years. Mm-hmm. And I've, Warwick's been always amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And their basses are, you know... For me, I love them. They're heavy. Uh, I have this beautiful semi-hollow Starbase, which is amazing. I never really owned a vintage instrument. And for my 40th birthday, I said, you know what? I'm going to buy a a P-Base from my birth year. So I bought a 78 off the internet. Turned out to be really, really quite good. It was really well-priced. It's just really, 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 really heavy. Really heavy. Wow. And it's a backbreaker. But I use it at home when I'm recording and, and so on. And I, I live quite close, without giving my address away, I live quite close to Chelsea Guitars. And okay. I took it by there just for a little touch-up. Mm-hmm. And there was a 66 sitting in the store and... You know, I picked it up and started playing it. And I'm like, oh, man, this is, this is the one, actually. This is the one. Whatever, however this bass is set up or whatever it is, this is really it. And I had a, you know, I had a reasonable price tag. And I thought I can't really do this right now because I just bought this other bass. And I reluctantly put it back on the shelf. And a few months later, I went back in and I, I picked it up and I played it again. I'm like you know what, I don't, whatever, I just got to have this. So I bought it there and then, and it's really pretty much all I've been playing. And I I don't miss the fifth string. It's got flats on it. You know, it's got all the kind of, you know, the typical, it's got the, the, my first vintage bass starter pack. (laughs) (laughs) Kid, you know? Yeah. Um, But man, it's, it's incredible. It's a great bass. Yeah. So, you know. I have one P bass and um, I really dig it. I bought it not really understanding what the deal was, but like it was one of those, it was like a American vintage reissue from like the 90s and it was like in pretty much like super unplayed condition. Uh-huh. And um, I don't know what part of the 90s it was from, but essentially it's supposed to be a 62 Uh so i got it and i didn't play it very much when i first got it Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but you know almost to the point where i was thinking about selling it because i was like i don't know you're like i'm more of a jazz bass guy like i have a jazz i have a couple jazz basses and that's always been more my vibe because i like the two pickups yep so i was kind of looking at this thing and i wasn't really sure what to do with it because I liked playing it and it sounded cool, but I hadn't really 
it's not like I really had a use for it necessarily. Mm. Like I or it hadn't made its hadn't made it hadn't proved its case yet for me. Um, even though I know like they're awesome bases. So I decided right before I was thinking about putting it up on, I, I think this was pre reverb. So probably eBay or uh-huh. Craigslist or something. I just used it on like three gigs. And that was like, there's no way I'm selling this thing. This thing's awesome. Um, and, and I sort of understood like what the, what the allure of it was um, in terms of just why, you know, why it works, why it works, you know, in, in recording so well, and even just the stuff that I was doing, like, I just really liked the way, it, the way it played, but also like the sound that came back and, and because it's got the slightly wider spacing because mm, yep. the year it's supposed to be yep. um, like, honestly, dude, I can play the same shit on there that I can on any other bass. Like, I mean, you're not, I'm not supposed to say that, but like, of course, I could I could do I can play like my the dusty end of the bass licks and the fast stuff, but but like it it I don't know, man. It it still made me play different things because of how it sounds and how it responds. So in a very quick collection of seconds, not even like minutes, like it sort of made its case right then and there. And so now now like I get it. Like I really I really dig it. I don't know that I could make it my main bass, but it's definitely something I use on a lot of things. I think it's something that you have to have in your arsenal. Yep. At least one. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'd like to get one um, that's like got rounds and like maybe a bigger bridge, uh-huh. like a more of a rocked out thing. Um, Cause I, I think it's great for that too. But um, yeah, no, it's like, I, I didn't really get into the, um, the, I came up like with fenders mostly. And then I mm. got into fancier bases, which I like, like, I don't, mm. I dig them. Like I, I kind of like the, the both schools. Cause I, I got used for both, both yep. of those sounds with the kind of stuff that I do. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I think, I think having a really simple thing that has two knobs and you know, whatever kind of sound design you're going to do with it will come from analog stuff and not like a preamp, you know, or not. Absolutely. You know, Yep. I think, I think it's a really, you know, it's a very honest instrument too. I mean, you can't, it keeps you honest. I always said that about a P bass. Yeah. It, it, it keeps you honest. <laughs> you don't need to be too fancy. Just play the bass. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it really does. It really does. Um, like, cause if you, you know, if your, if your attack is too one way, it can get kind of not so cool sounding. It just depends. Absolutely. On yeah, there's a there's a definite way to play that thing that makes it work really well, you know. But but yeah, my curiosity with it was more just being a fan of like records that have that sound on there versus like of course. like I'm not really one of those P bass or die types. Of course. Absolutely. Um I get why that is a mentality, but that's not one that I currently share. Like it's more just like I don't know, man. It's like if you're gonna have you're going to have like an envelope filter you need to have a you need to have like a mutron you got to have you know it's just like one of those things you got to have it of course absolutely um, do you like music man bases at all have you have you gotten to that into well the- i i was i was a late starter on the bass mm-hmm. i started when i was maybe 18 
Right on. And I was a huge, huge Chili Peppers fan. Huge. So my first real bass was a music band. Okay. Fleece style one. It was a four-string Stingray uh, maple board all black. I love that bass. I don't wow. know why I sold. I, you know, there's a couple of bases in my, my time that I sold and I regret yeah. selling it. But, you know, I was much younger at the time. Right. But uh, I don't think, think I would go back to that today. Uh, but I did love it at the time. Yeah. But, um, you know, maybe one day I'll add one. But for now, between the Warwick's and this P. I already have too many bases. <laughs> right, right. No, I get it. I, get I already it. have too many. I've got six or seven. That's just too many. Yeah. But I do love, you know, I, recently before the shutdown, I was, you know, I was kind of rotating things just to keep it interesting. Yeah. And I, I would take something different out and I kind of discovered things about bases I hadn't played in a while that I really, really loved. So I was keeping it, keeping it kind of fresh. But I, I don't need to buy another bass. I'd rather buy keyboards, to be honest. Yeah. And sound modules and, and that kind of thing. No, I'm with you on that, man. Like, I'm definitely... There's a couple basses I still want to get, man. Like, mm-hmm. they just are iconic that have, like, sounds. Like, I always wanted a Spectre NS2. I always thought those yep. bases were fucking awesome. Yep. Um, yep. And, and I don't have, like, a Stingray proper, but I got a Lakeland, which can almost do that sound mm-hmm. pretty yep. well. Um, but yeah, I just like, you know, like on those Queen records, like when Roger Deacon was using, using that shit, um, or John Deacon, my bad. Who the fuck is Roger Deacon? My bad. John Deacon. Another like and dust. And then you know, like of course, um, Bernard Edwards, like when he played one. And then, Classic stuff. I mean, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I guess that's how it works, right? You always pick. You pick the things that were, were part of what influenced you in the first place. Yeah. Because you're chasing that. You know, you're not only chasing a sound, you're chasing a, a style, a vibe, and even a look. You know, I used to chase looks. For right. Like I, man, I love the way that thing looks. I didn't care about how it sounded. <laughs> like, I want a cool-looking bass, you know? Yeah, exactly. Ended up with something all white with blue lights in it. You know what I mean? And... <laughs> You know, it's part, it's part of growing up on an instrument, right? And then ironically, you come full circle and you end up with, you know, vintage P-Bass. <laughs> well, I think, you know? yeah, I think there's definitely a thing about how simple that instrument is in a way, but how effective that simplicity is. That Absolutely. Just like, you know, because I, I think, I, you know, I love five strings and I definitely like five strings that have active preamps, even though my approach with that stuff is I, I, I like the, I want the pickups to sound good without mm-hmm. the preamp. So I, uh-huh. I would start there, but I do think depending on like what kind of sound you're going for, it may not always be the easiest thing to blend depending right. on like what the instrumentation is or what the drums sound like. It can definitely be done. I mean, we've definitely like, I mean, I think the one thing that's interesting about like, like, okay, let's stop. We're talking about the chili peppers, right? Like, um blood sugar sex magic sounds kind of like an album that wasn't made 
it wasn't the most modern sounding 90s record you know because mm. it's like room sounds and stuff but he's playing a wall on that thing yeah that. i remember yep and those things are you know those are those instruments are amazing but mm. they have like their own kind of unique preamp and you know it's got a different kind of mid structure in a way than like his stingrays i liked his sound when he played the specter basses too like i thought on like Uplift Mofo Party Plan and Mother's mm-hmm. Milk, like I thought that sound suited him also. Cause you you can play really hard on one of those things and it gives it back. Man, I love those records. Yeah. I listened to, I, I went through the whole catalog, man. <laughs> yeah, they're freaky cool styly. Yeah. All of that stuff. I mean what it what it yeah. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but just to think that just to think that that style of band could come together yeah, and then become the mainstream success that they became. When you really think of it, especially when you listen to the, the older, older material, just how like, I, you know, just how, you know, the, in some respects, like some of those earlier records, if you take the musicianship out, they were kind of like the meme records of the time, if that makes sense. They were funny. Yeah. They were funny records about stupid shit. <laughs> yeah. With ridiculous lyrics and like themes and all kinds of stuff. Fuck, that was so good, man. Really, yeah. really good stuff. My intro to them was strange because I, was, I wasn't great at skateboarding, but I was into skateboard culture. And, um, yep. I had first heard about them probably reading Thrasher magazine mm-hmm. and there was like an ad for like this place that sold like punk rock t-shirts. So they had like the chili peppers and bad brains and fishbone. And yep. this was, this was definitely like, if I had to pick a year, I don't think mother's milk was even out yet. And so there was this really shitty movie called thrashing and it uh-huh. starred Josh Brolin. Uh-huh. Um, who, you know, would later become Thanos and be in a bunch of other movies. But, like, it was this horrible movie, man. And I think it was basically supposed to be, like, a skateboarding movie that was loosely based on, like, like a West Side Story or Romeo and Juliet. It wasn't a movie. Uh-huh. There was, like, a there was like an evil gang of skateboarders and shit. Mm. Like, he fell in love with some girl that was, like, the sister of, like, the leader of the evil gang of skateboarders. But uh-huh. there's a scene where they go to this bar and the chili peppers are playing and flea's wearing like this old like uh like this what do you call it? like it, it was like one of those like leather helmets that like pilots wore in world war ii oh yeah goggles. yeah they did like black eyed blonde off of free yep. and that and that was the first time i ever saw him and i was like what the fuck is this man yeah it was like not in a judgmental way more just like wow that's that's insane you know yeah but um, yeah, my introduction was my introduction was under the bridge, of course, because you know, being in Australia, we just didn't get everything yeah. at the same time. And then from there, I just went, you know, I went all in. That's cool, those guys. Actually, I I when I was younger, I worked in in a supermarket to uh, <laughs> to pay off my Stingray base, actually. Because my parents were like, "You want that base? You got to go work and get a loan and and pay." Yeah. And uh, one of the guys that worked there 
his name's Danny Major. Shout out to Danny if he's listening. But Danny played the drums. We had another kid that played guitar, Kenji. We're all such huge fans. And recently, I think it's in the last couple of years, Danny dug up some uh, recordings. We used to just sit in his basement and record them. And he sent the recordings to me. I listened to them and I'm like, you know what? We were actually pretty good at doing this stuff and playing these songs. And I just realized like how formative it was as far as developing my playing ability. Mm-hmm. And the other part of me was like, shit, I wish I could play like that <laughs> today because um, I just don't play like that anymore, you know? Yeah. That youthful kind of aggressiveness on the instrument. But, uh, man, I, I, you know, I had all of their, their records. I had the, I had the notorious uh, River Phoenix uh, instructional video as oh, well. Yeah. Man, I had that on VHS. That's one of those things. If I ever met Flea, and it was ever a thing where like, like if I ever became friends with Flea and this wouldn't be the first, this wouldn't even be like the fifth thing I would ask him about, but like down the line, like that's one thing like I'd want to know, like what the ins and outs of like the- Tell me about that video. Yeah, because there's video, you know, like the, you know, all those videos have like their own unique set of circumstances. Like, you know, the Jocko video, has all these stories about it, you know, of like, just, you know, like, so like the, the flea thing, I mean, I think that's the one with uh, Jerry, right? Yep. And they did it you know, right, right up the street, man. Like, or from where kind of close to where you are, not too far. Like they did it drummers collective. I mean, that's the amazing thing to me is now living here, you know? Yeah. Just thinking about things that were, you know, watching these, watching these videos when I was young and everything feeling so distant. And, you know, there was an air of mystery around it, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing I loved, like, pre, pre-internet pre days, when you got, you know, a copy of a copy of a copy of a VHS yeah. that had been dubbed so many times that you, you had to adjust the tracking every time for it to be watchable, right? Yeah. But you knew nothing about how, you know, came together or where it was shot, you know, what the circumstances were, you know? Now it's, now it's different. It's like everything's there. But what I have enjoyed is a few of the legends now coming on, on social media and, and doing their thing and, and, uh, was uh, recently I saw Ready Freddie Washington do a play along to Forget Me Nots. Oh, wow. I think on I think on this it's on his Instagram. I think on the same. I don't know if it was the same bass that he recorded it on, but it was on a P bass. Okay. And I'm like, man, like that's fucking cool. Yeah. Because without this, it wouldn't exist. That video wouldn't exist. And the amount of times I've like played, you know, jammed along with that song. Right. And to watch him, to watch him play it, you know, is, is incredible. Yeah. You know? I think it's always interesting to see, cause I feel like that's one of those baselines that there's people who can definitely play it right, but it definitely gets butchered. And um, there's a lot of baselines like that, 
So I always smile. Well, it's every, it's every, it's every Tommy the Cat YouTube tutorial, right? <laughs> over right. and over again, you know. Right. And it's still there's a thousand versions of that, and not one of them are really, you know. I'll never play it the way Les plays it. Yeah. You know, I it's weird, man. Like I remember uh, there was a Nam I was at, and I was fucking around with the baseline to prince's let's work and yep. this dude was like that's not right i'm like it is right right um, because <laughs> because like i have a bootleg of like the revolution practicing in a rehearsal and i learned it from watching that because there was something that he wasn't hearing that's on uh -huh. the record but it's not he wasn't like when he played it for me it wasn't that different but it was different enough but like yeah i mean i i don't know it's like i I definitely feel like that that baseline can get fucked up really easy. But then there's that video on YouTube where Brown Mark is playing it, and you know he's he's doing it how it's supposed to be done. Um, well, seven then, seven seven ninety three eleven is the other one, right? Yeah, that's the other one. That's like definitely. I it's think it's just never the same. No, as the recording, it's just never the same. Yeah, I mean, I've there's two things I've kind of deferred to that I feel comfortable saying are like definitive sources to like check people's work. Like mm -hmm. I found this, uh, there was, all right, this was only up for like a minute, but after Prince died, they had, they had like some old things that were uh, available. There was like a Prince CD-ROM at one point where you could mm -hmm. virtually go around this, digital version of paisley park amazing and it had little tiny sections of audio in this room with instruments so when you clicked on the bass i have this on instagram somewhere i can like it's probably way back but like i, I like filmed myself messing with it um but when you click on the bass it plays the bass line to 777-9311 and you can kind of there's nothing else going on so you can kind of hear where the dead notes are and what he's right. where the notes are. So there's that, but then there's like that footage of him playing that bass solo where he quotes a bunch of his own things. And I feel like that's probably as close to a playthrough as we're going to get. Yep. Um, which is cool. Cause like, I kind of like that there's some mystery there and it's Me so too, man. <laughs> Me too. I love that. And there's only like, probably like a handful of people that can verify whether that's it or not. You Absolutely. Know? Yep. There's something to be said for that, for sure. Yeah. Well, man, I appreciate you coming on. Um, yeah, man. Thank you for having me. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. New episodes every Wednesday. Be well. And don't forget to vote.